0: We have got a perplexing text before us today. Uh, If you're visiting with us, you've obviously found out that we're in the middle of a series on the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ is centered around three judgments, judgments that are sent upon the world in response partially to the prayers of God's people who have suffered and have gone ahead of us and are in heaven now. There are the seven seal judgments, which we've looked at. There are the seven trumpet judgments, which we are in the middle of right now. And there are the seven bowl judgments. These three judgments are recapitulations of one another. They keep returning back on themselves and giving us a view of things from a different angle and different perspectives. But they're speaking of the same period at the same time, which I believe is the time of the last days. They cover the time from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. And as you can see, when we come to the seventh trumpet, we are in heaven and the kingdom of heaven has come. And has now become uh, realized fully on earth. If you have been following with us, these uh, judgments that proceed from the throne of God and that are part of the seal that was in the right hand of the fathers, or the scroll that was in the right hand of the fathers, uh, and the lamb opened, are unfold to us and between the sixth and the seventh seal judgments there was an interlude we looked at that interlude a couple weeks ago which described the, the church and the way that God has sealed and protected the church during this time there is also an interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpet which we will look at next week and the following week chapter 10 and chapter 11 as they also describe another perspective of the church here on earth during the time of the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. one of the things that we so desperately need in our world as well is a perspective of heaven we are so given to a, uh, a earthly perspective on life that we read a, a chapter like this from chapter 9 and we are perplexed and um, but I think we are finally open to realize the true reality of the world in which we live It's not simply a material reality, it's a spiritual reality. And those two worlds collide and, in fact, impact one another. I was reading a little while ago a quote from, or in Eugene Peterson, in a a book, I think it was, Running with Horses, or if you can't run with men, how can you keep up with horses anyhow? It's a book by Eugene Peterson. And in it he says, if we forget that the newspapers are footnotes of scripture and not the other way around, We will finally be afraid to get out of bed in the morning. Too many of us spend far too much time with the editorial page and not nearly enough with the prophetic vision. We get our interpretation of politics and economics and morals from journalists when we should be getting only information. The meaning of the world is most accurately given us by God's word. The meaning of the world is most accurately given us by God's word. It's helpful to look at verse 13 of chapter 18 because it sets us up for the three judgments that are to come and these are the final three trumpets and they're described by the angel as three woes. The first four trumpets impacted creation, the earth, the sea, the fresh water, and the skies. These judgments now directly affect humankind. And they release judgments on those who dwell on the earth. As the angels say, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels will blow. I think it's important for us just to stop for a minute and get our bearings on a particular phrase. Um, That phrase is those who dwell on the earth. I've been asked a number of times, even in the past number of weeks, and certainly over the years, as we talk about the book of Revelation what about the people of God what's happening to them during the book of revelation I've already sort of let you understand a little bit of my view that I believe the book of revelation unfolds between the first and the second coming of Christ but if God's judgment is being poured out what happens to the church are the church the recipients of the wrath of God do they experience the judgment of God on mankind What does the Bible say about this? Well, first, that phrase, those who dwell upon the earth, it's a technical phrase. It's used 10 times throughout the book of Revelation, and every time it refers to those who stand in rebellion against God. It refers to those who embrace idolatry, it refers to those who refuse to repent from their sins, it refers to those who are against the coming of God's kingdom. And so the warning judgments are directed to those who oppose the Lamb and his ways. The warning judgments are directed and poured out on the unsealed. Now, I need to describe that word a little bit for us, the unsealed. Remember back in chapter 7, if you were here with us, before the seven seals were broken, the angel cried out, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. There is a distinction made between the servants of God and those who dwell on the earth. Remember, John heard a number, 144,000 who were sealed. I don't believe this is a literal number. I believe it is a figurative number. It's a figurative number referring to all of God's people, both Jew and Gentile. If it's a literal number, 144,000, then the rest of Jewish believers and the rest of Gentiles then are subject to the wrath of God and the trumpets that are poured out on the earth. No, I believe the sealed refer to all of God's people, the redeemed before the foundation of the world, every single one that God has set his love upon from which nobody can be snatched out of his hand. The sealed ones are safe and secure through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ and have been brought into a new covenant that is eternal with God. Nothing will be able to separate them from the love of God in Christ. Now you might have heard as Nicole read, and she read so well, in verse 4 of chapter 9, as these locusts are released on the earth, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth nor any plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God. Those who are not God's children. Those who are not marked out by God. So God has taken steps to protect and to seal his people spiritually. We will never be judged for our sins. They have been judged in Christ. We will experience the wrath of the evil one from time to time. Because he will persecute and he will kill some. But we will never, ever experience the wrath of God. Ever. So as we come in then to the fifth trumpet with that in our mind. The fifth trumpet is a... Difficult, difficult trumpet. As I understand it, and I'll just be clear off the top, I understand the locusts to be demons, to be demonic spirits whose purpose is to torment and destroy the lives of unbelieving men and women. It only takes a few minutes to look at the kind of tormenting and oppression that are caused by demonic forces by reading through the Gospels, for instance. And as you read the Gospels, we are confronted with this release of demonic hordes as Jesus came in the kingdom of God, first came on this earth. And you see in them the way that they cause blindness, the way that they cause muteness, the way that they cause a loss of hearing, the way that they turn somebody into a violent person that nobody can touch, the way they take somebody and cause them to throw themselves in a fire. They are out to hurt and to torment and to cause pain. Their impact on humankind is anything but benign. Repeatedly throughout the scriptures, they are shown as cruel parasites intent on the destruction of any individual that they come in contact with. And so this locust army that is released by this fifth trumpet symbolizes a demonic torrent that is unleashed to afflict the souls of those who dwell on the earth. Remember, this is the perspective of heaven on earth. This is a spiritual reality that the vast majority of people who dwell on the earth will not acknowledge or consider. This is tough because we come to difficult images and realities. One commentator said this is the worst scene in the whole book as far as he is concerned. I agree it is a difficult scene. I don't know if I would say it's worse because there's a couple others that are pretty difficult. But what does John see? John sees, he says, a star that has fallen from heaven to earth in verse 1. Well, we know that's not a literal star because right away he says he. And that star is then described as an angel. And we've already confronted that when we understand that there are seven angels in the seven churches. And those angels are stars. And so this star is a reference to an individual. Who is that individual? I suspect it's Satan. Satan. This is not, or this is Satan. Jesus describes, if you remember back in the Gospel of Luke, as Jesus sent out the 72 disciples, they come back to Jesus, and as they come back to him, they they say to him, Lord, even demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. And then over again in chapter 12, which we'll look at a little bit later, in verse nine of chapter 12, it says, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of this whole world, he was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And so as I understand it, this star that has been thrown down is Satan. And it's the same individual that's described in verse 11 Of chapter 9 as well. The king of the abyss. A key was given to him. A key to the shaft of the abyss. The abyss is a word that occurs nine times in the New Testament. Seven of those are in the book of Revelation. The abyss is a description of a bottomless pit. It's a description of a place that cannot be measured. It's the abode of the demonic hosts. Again, you might remember a story in the book of, uh, I think it's Luke, where Jesus goes into a certain area and he is confronted by individuals who are possessed with demons and he casts the demons out. And uh, he's about to dispense them and the demons say, well, don't send us into the abyss. Send us into pigs. There's a recognition that they had come from the abyss and they didn't want to be sent back to that place of suffering and torment described in Jude and in 2nd Peter So a key is given to this angel that fell Who's given him the key well it's God or it's Christ that has given him the key it's a, another illustration for us a reminder of the sovereign power of God that nothing happens in this world without God's expressed permission and consent Nothing operates outside of his sovereign authority And we see his sovereignty expressed again and again in this text in chapter 9 where it says, And power was given to the locusts, and they were told you can only go this far, but that's it. And you can only torment people for five months, and you're not permitted to kill those who are sealed by God. Loved ones, this world is not full of evil out of control, although it might seem like that to us from time to time. Every speck of evil, every thing involved in evil is boundaried by God no matter how hideous it might appear. Remember again the words of Christ. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forevermore. And I hold the key to death and Hades. So this shaft was opened up into the abyss and out of this shaft came smoke. As it poured out of there, smoke is a Thing that, dis- or that conceals it is a, uh, a thing that uh, speaks of moral darkness it is certainly a thing that represents spiritual blindness and then out of that smoke it says these locusts poured onto the earth and power it was given them power of scorpions like scorpions have on the earth scorpions can inflict incredible suffering and pain they're usually only deadly for young children But if an adult is stung by them, it is incredible pain. These locusts, uh, like scorpions, are depicted in scripture as instruments of judgment and discipline. Remember again the plague of locusts that God sent upon the Egyptian people as another evidence of his power over their gods. Locusts are also described in the book of Joel, and I'm not sure if they're figurative or literal in the book of Joel. I tend to think they're uh, literal, but I can be convinced that they might be figurative. But when you come to Revelation chapter 9 and you see the locusts hazed, clearly they are figurative. Their torment, like that of a scorpion sting, is mental and physical and emotional agony. It's a limited torment, though. It allows time for reprieve. It gives opportunity for relief. It's severe, but it's limited. But so severe is it that the response of those who are tormented is, I want to die. They seek death, but they can't find it. They want to die, but death flees from them. This is considerable torment that is poured out on those who dwell on the earth. The meaning of life eludes them. I could describe this again and again and again. I was reading a newspaper article this past week or on my uh, my feed on my phone, and it was describing an individual who had been, it seems, falsely accused, but uh, as a result of that false accusation, he had lost his position. He had received a bit of a compensation for it, but he had lost his position, along with losing his position. He's lost any potential to find work in his career or his field again. He's been financially and reputationally ruined, And he writes, truthfully, I think of killing myself on a daily basis. He lives with mental and emotional anguish and torment because of what has happened to him. We find this kind of thing described in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 28, where there Moses articulates some of the curses that will come upon the Israelites if they choose to continually disobey God. And I'll just read a portion of them. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all you understand, undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off of the land and you are entering to take possession of. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation, and fiery heat, and with drought and with blight and with mildew. The lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind and you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness and you shall not prosper in your ways you will be only oppressed and crushed continually so that you will be driven mad by the sights that your eyes see in part it's these demonic hordes that carry out the judgments of god but even in the midst of all of this there's mercy is there not it's a limited judgment five months they can't they seek death but they can't find it god restrains them from following through god protects them from the ultimate inability to ever return to him we need to step back a minute don't we i can see the body language here it's not easy stuff to hear it's not stuff that we hear very often But this is, we wonder to ourselves, is this really the way the world works? Is this really the reality in which we live, this physical reality and this spiritual reality? Remember, the book of Revelation is given to us so that we might get heaven's perspective on earth. We understand that there are spiritual realities as well as physical realities. The heavens have a view of history. There is a way that God describes history on earth and the way that we describe history Generally, the people who dwell on the earth only describe history from the physical senses, from things that you can touch, tea, see, taste, handle, and see. It's a material world only, but the Bible exposes us to the reality that there is a spiritual world also. And this spiritual world has a direct impact on the material world in which we live. And behind the scenes of our world is an age-long conflict that is described in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 where thereafter sin has come into this beautiful world God has made, he says in order to protect people and certainly uh, his own children, he says, I will put enmity, I will put hostility between the sons of, uh, of, of Satan and the sons of Eve. And a few months ago, we traced that hostility, that evidence itself again and again and again throughout Scripture. There are two families at war on the earth so behind the scene of this age-long conflict is a spiritual conflict of massive proportions that affects men and women around the world in which significant hordes of demons are at work destroying the lives and tormenting those who don't worship Jesus remember things are not as they seem or things are not only as they seem. There is a whole lot more going on in this world than meets the physical senses. And so we see in this fifth trumpet the, the hatred and venom of Satan and his wrath as it, as it is expended not only on those who trust in the word of God and hold fast to the testimony of Jesus, but notice you'll, you'll see the viciousness, how evil turns against itself. And how Satan turns and inflicts those who actually follow him and worship him. And causes destruction for them. The devil rewards his loyal subjects with cruel torture. I could show examples of this in the world around us. We come back then to the text and we're reminded again of the limitations only five months. All the actions of these demonic hordes are part of the divine will. Part of God's plan, contained in the scroll that was taken by the Lamb. John grasps the image of these uh, locusts in verses 7 to 10. It's so clear. These are not meant to be taken literally. They're meant to be understood figuratively. The word like is used again and again because John can't, can't come up with an exact sort of description or explanation of these. He exaggerates the actual physiology of a locust to demonstrate how powerful they are, how swift these forces are, how intelligent, how fierce, how capable of they, they are of inflicting spiritual and mental torment. They are supernatural creatures, incredibly fearsome creatures. So I'm fairly certain that John nor Jesus intended us to find literal reference to these locust hordes in the realm of modern warfare. And rather than looking sort of forward to earthly eventualities and maybe look at something that we've seen on YouTube or something that's described as, and saying, well, that's the locust, we ought to look back at the Old Testament and understand the likes that John uses to describe them to get an understanding of the power of these hordes. The name of the king, it's verse 11. They have a king over them, these hordes. The king over them is the angel of the bottomless pit. In Hebrew, his name is Abaddon, destroyer. In Greek, his name is Apollyon, destruction. I don't think it's any coincidence that the Greek god Apollo gets his name from Apollyon. I don't think it's any coincidence that one of the ways that the Greek god Apollo is depicted is as a locust. I don't think it's any coincidence that the emperor Domitian, who was so brutal on the young church in the early centuries of its growth, viewed himself as Apollo incarnate. These hordes go out to destroy and bring destruction. The sixth trumpet is death. It begins by describing a scene around the altar. This is the second time we come across the altar, the four horns of the altar that's before the presence of God. The first time was a way of describing the saints who are under the altar, who have many of them been martyred and given up their life, and they are in prayer before God. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, until you avenge our suffering? And as their prayers go up into the presence of God and around this altar, it says a voice is heard. I don't know whose voice it is. The Bible doesn't tell us. There's a number of people who guess at it. I don't want to add my guess to it. But what matters are the words that the voice speaks. Release the four angels bound at the river Euphrates. And with this, this woe marks the end of a period of God's restraint on the earth. Because following this, the bowl judgments will then be poured out. The Euphrates River, we know it. You can go on a map and find the Euphrates River. It is a literal place. In the Old Testament, it was an area from which the armies of uh, destruction came upon the people of Israel. On the other side of the Euphrates were cities like Nineveh and Babylon. On the other side of the Euphrates came invading forces like the Babylonians and the Persians and the Assyrians. In the first century AD, those who would have first read this letter, they would have automatically thought about the parthenian parthenians who lived on the other side of the euphrates the roman border in fact extended to the uh, euphrates river and the romans were afraid of the parthenians the parthenians were brutal beyond any fighting force that really had been known and twice they had come into uh, rome and caused uh, damage to the roman empire in a few areas but they were greatly feared by the roman armies And so as John is describing this, he's giving us a picture that that there is going to come this invading force that makes the Parthenian army look like a child's army. Release the angels that are bound. They could be holy angels, but it's difficult to imagine holy angels that are bound and that need to be released. These four angels have been restrained and they had not been permitted to carry out their destruction on earth. So it would seem to me most likely that these angels are also evil angels. They've been bound, they've been held back by God and notice until a precise time, an hour, a day, a uh, a month, and a year. In other words, it's a reminder again that God knows the exact moment of everything that occurs on his earth. There is nothing that is outside of the sovereign control of God. They are released at God's appointed time. These four angels have control over an army of 200 million strong. Two times 10,000 times 10,000. It's a demonic horde again that's released upon the earth. I think it's an indefinable, an innumerable group, an indefinite group that 200 million is symbolic. It's a mounted army whose riders have a bla- are blazing with color. Uh, it could be uh, uh, red or it could be blue or it could be yellow. And the horses that they ride have heads like lions and out of their mouths come fire, smoke and judgment. I don't believe this is an army that comes from China. This is a not a literal army. this is a figurative army. The description is clearly symbolic of this group of horse, this pent-up, host of hell that is unleashed throughout the world and it's also the horses not the horsemen that inflict damage it's important that we don't lose sight of the forest for the trees here there's a piling up isn't there of sort of hideous descriptions that underscore the demons as ferocious and devastating and fierce And the fact is that in their tails, their tails are like snakes and they have a head on them and they inflict injury with them, which further suggests demonic forces. Because every time a snake is used or or mentioned in the book of Revelation, it's always a reference to Satan. And so it would seem to be further affirmation that these hosts are again a demonic horde. There's an escalation now, isn't there, from one quarter of the earth and from torment and suffering to no death to now a third of the earth are permitted to be killed. These death-dealing horses, I don't believe, are tanks and planes. Or maybe they're not only tanks and planes, but as one has written there, also cancers and road accidents and malnutrition and terrorist bombs and peaceful demises in nursing homes. It's also the things that come out of their mouths, which is often symbolic of deception and lies and deceit and satan is the father of lies and speaks nothing but untruth this trumpet too i believe is already sounded as jesus sent out the 72 i've already mentioned from luke he's saying lord even the demons are subject to us in our name even during de- jesus day the demonic hordes were already active already at work already inflicting punishment and pain and torment and harm upon those who dwell on the earth And as i said jesus said to them i saw satan fall like lightning from heaven these last days are certainly days when this demonic horde is moving back and forth across this earth come to verse 21 and verse 22 and we find what one person has said to be two of the most distressing saddest verses in all of the scriptures why because John says that the rest of the mankind who was not killed by these plagues did not repent. It's actually better to put they refused to repent. That's the, uh, that's the tone of the Greek and the structure of the Greek. They refused to repent even in the midst of all that they saw, even in the midst of all the torment, even in the midst of all the pain, they would not look up, they would not turn to God, they would not turn away from the things of the world to spiritual realities, they would not repent. They would not give up worshiping demons. See, people don't worship demons today, they sure do. What is idolatry? Idolatry is demon worship. We know that an idol is nothing. The Bible tells us clearly an idol is nothing. They're dumb. They can't speak. They can't see. They can't help. They can't do anything. But Paul clearly tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that behind idols is demons. And so when you worship an idol, you're actually worshiping a demon. And so he says they refused to give up their idolatry. They refuse to repent of their murders, and their sorceries, and their sexual immoralities, and their thefts. Don't we see this in the world around us today? That in the midst of so much torment, in the midst of so much death, in the midst of so much struggle, that people, rather than repenting, raise their fist at heaven. And as John said a little bit earlier, they cry out for the rocks of the mountains to fall upon them, to hide them from the wrath of God. I don't think there can be a more tragic picture of human depravity than an unwillingness in the light of all the evidence of God in this world. People refusing to repent. They hear of pollution, inflation, of dwindling resources, of blind politicians, and will not admit that the first four trumpets of God are sounding. In the end, they themselves are affected by these troubles, and for one reason or another, life becomes a torment. The locusts are out. Trumpet five is sounding, but they will not repent, not even when the angels of the Euphrates rise to summon the trumpet six, and the cavalry rides out to slay by any kind of destruction. Not only war, but a friend or a relative, a husband or a wife, not even in bereavement will they repent. There's no change of heart. They continue to worship demons and embrace a sinful lifestyle. It struck me, I was reflecting on the Egyptian plagues as I have been, and that as the 10th plague was sent upon the land of Egypt, and the 10th plague was the death of the firstborn of every Egyptian and anybody who had, didn't have the blood of Christ over the lintels. And when that happened, there was no repentance in Egypt. They still refuse to acknowledge the power of God and the hand of God at work. Never let it be said that God has not done everything in his power even to the destruction of his own perfect world in order to bring men and women to their senses and to repentance. We struggle with a text like this sometimes. Sometimes it goes through our head. God really this is what you're like God you would do that and you are doing that and I think when we ask that question it maybe comes from a heart that hasn't dove deeply into the nature of sin and rebellion comes from a heart that hasn't sufficiently understood what a travesty it is For God's creation to turn its back on the Creator and worship creation. It comes from a heart that doesn't understand a holy, holy, holy God. Then we come to the seventh trumpet. It's called a woe, a last woe. And you wonder, how can this be? From the perspective of of the saints, it's a wonderful trumpet what i want to say is blow trumpet blow let's bring on the seventh trumpet but from the perspective of those who dwell on the earth it's a terrible woe because there's no more opportunity to repent there's no more time to turn back to god because now the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our god and judgment fully and finally will take place we arrive at the end of the trumpets at the end of the age the last trumpet, the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord, that's where we are when we come to the seventh trumpet. God, John has brought us full cycle again. And the last trumpet sounds, and I wonder in my head, and I think more and more that this could be the case, but I wonder in my head if this is not the trumpet of 1 Thessalonians 4.16 and the trumpet of 1 Corinthians 15, where there it says, but we shall, all be, we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of eye at the last trumpet. Maybe the seventh trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. Could that be the seventh trumpet that's sounding in Revelation? Do these words sound familiar to you? The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Every Christmas we listen to Handel's Messiah, and we sing the Hallelujah Chorus, and this this refrain is repeated again and again and again to us. Notice it says the kingdom of this world, singular. There's a lot of kingdoms in this world, but they all are subsumed under or fall under a single kingdom the kingdom of Satan. There are only two kingdoms in this world. There's the kingdom of Satan and there's the kingdom of God. There's the kingdom of darkness and there's the kingdom of life. There only is two. And this is John's way of describing all the kingdoms of this world. The single kingdom that is ruled by Satan has now been totally destroyed, totally overcome, and God is the ruler over all the kingdoms of this world and universe. Satan is called the ruler of this world. He's called the God of this world, the ruler of the prince of the powers of the air. John tells us that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And this single kingdom is finally crushed by the kingdom of God. And God's reign is now without challenge or rival. Notice the past tense too, has become. We talk about the return of the Lord amongst God's people often. And sometimes I think we talk about it as though, well, it may happen. I don't know if it's happened. It's been a long time. Is it ever going to happen? Revelation says it has happened. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of God. There's loud praises in heaven. Why? Because it's being spoken as though it's already happened. It's bespoken as though the victory of God has already taken place. And we're to read it, read it in that way. So sure is the coming of the kingdom of God and the defeat of the kingdom of God that, or the kingdom of Satan that we can speak of it as already having happened. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God. And notice, do you not notice also, there's a strange phrase in verse uh, uh, verse 17. The 24 elders who don't spend much time sitting, they spend most of the time falling down and worshiping God, but they say, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was and is. What are we waiting for? And is to come. It's not there. Why? The kingdom has already come. That's how certain it is, that's how sure it is, that's how final it is, that that, that's removed from that, and it's spoken of as though the kingdom of God is here now. The future of God is sure and certain. There is no more future when we get to the seventh trumpet. Eternity has begun. And we see this. Why? What happens? It's the time of his eternal reign to begin. It's the time for the nations to be judged It's the time for the saints and the prophets to be rewarded. This is speaking about the great rhine throat judgment and all the other judgments that happen on the last day. It's a time to destroy those who destroy the earth. Who? The demonic demonic hordes. These destructions are talked about in Revelations 19 uh, and 20 and we'll get to them in a few weeks. How do we respond to all of this? I'm skipping a bunch because I'm noticing the time. How do we respond? Three responses. I think the first is like the 24 elders. Thank you. You ever say thank you to God? We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty. What do you have to give thanks for today? That you are a sealed one. That you are a protected one. That you are a preserved one. That God has called you from darkness into light. That God has opened your eyes to see the beauty of Christ. You may suffer a little while on this earth. You may experience the wrath of the evil one, but you will never experience the wrath of God. You have been set apart. You have been sealed. You have been loved. You have been redeemed. Thank you, Lord God Almighty. Secondly, we wake up. We wake up. The return of Jesus is sure and certain. How are you living? Did you think about the return of Christ this past week at all? Did you say, Maranatha, under your breath a few times this week as you walked your dog or as you drove to work or as you came home from school? Did you look up in heaven once in a while and say, hmm, Christ is going to come one day? Are you watching? Are you waiting? Are you living in anticipation for the return of Christ? Loved ones, this is not something that may happen. It's not something that might happen. This is something that will happen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. I'll throw in a third, I've got four, I've got three, but I'll throw in a third one. Repent. If you're a dweller of the earth and you don't yet know Jesus Christ, repent. Turn to Christ. Give up your idolatry, give up your sinfulness, give up your rebellion. God is for you, not against you. The devil is against you, not for you. Why would you worship him? It's nothing to do but say, Christ, forgive me of my sins. Repent. And the final is simply worship God. There's so much in here that's difficult to wrap our heads around, isn't there? This is where a passage then like Romans chapter 11 is so helpful to me. Oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, Father, Help us to give glory to you now and forevermore. Thank you for saving and redeeming. Thank you for preserving and protecting. Thank you for being gracious to us even before we were sinners and opening our eyes that we might repent. Spirit of God, work in the hearts of those who our only earth dwellers right now help them to see christ help them to see the glory and beauty of god i pray in jesus name amen